Hi, I'm Pete Schmidt. It's great to be part of uh, Mako's series on Talking Blues and this podcast. It's great to be invited. Thanks for inviting me, Mako. You're welcome. So, so you're basically in Lima, Peru now. Yes, I am. And you spend all your time there? Yeah, um, it's very rare actually that I can visit Canada or America. I mean, especially since the pandemic. But um, I've largely been here for the last 11 years. So I want to get to that because I think it's an interesting backstory. But let me go back a number of years to the time you picked up the trumpet. Mm-hmm. That's how you started with music, correct? <laughs> yes, you remember. Um, you wouldn't remember me back then, but... Uh... <laughs> Tell me about, tell me about the trumpet, or tell me about your connection with music. Well, um, the trumpet definitely came from public school when um, we still had music classes way back, and um, so my instrument of choice was a trumpet, and that's really how I started because we had the school band, we had music classes, and I imagined myself being a great Maynard Ferguson or a Louis Armstrong or... <laughs> How old were you? Um, what grade? I started when I was around 10 on trumpet. So I would have been in public school. And uh, by 11, I was, you know, I had a trumpet and I was taking side lessons at music stores, right? So... But the trumpet wasn't good enough for you. Well... <laughs> Well, you know, it was it was good in a way. I was part of a concert band, you know. I was a young kid playing with adults, playing show show tunes and uh, pop music that would have been pop music in the 40s and 50s and so on. So it wasn't really my thing. I was, you know, 10, 11. Well, I started in the concert band maybe around 12 years old. So I didn't really like the music or I didn't, you know, wasn't really into it. And I found myself um, trying to figure out how to play Deep Purple and uh, Black Sabbath songs on my trumpets. <laughs> so that was a sign that uh, hmm, maybe I, I might need to change instruments. So that's what happened to the trumpet. Let's put it that way. I remember this about the Deep Purple thing. Because I remember once yeah. you told me that you were into yeah. Deep Purple. And I, I just Back then, when all I heard you play was deep, the blues, I thought, Deep Purple. Right. So, um, so because the trumpet couldn't play the guitar parts, you decided to pick up the guitar. How difficult was that transition? Well, I really loved guitar music. And I loved the sound. And, of course, I loved the energy. And it was, you know, it was classic rock. And that was of the day. So there was a lot of bands that I was into, and um, the sound of that uh, guitar by Richie Blackmore was great. It reeled me in, and I realized that I'm not going to get that out of the trumpet. I might be able to play the notes, but it's not. It was the sound that I was after. And I would watch the, you know, I'd look at the back of the album cover and see him with his uh, Fender Stratocaster guitar, and I thought I have to get one of those. And <laughs> so, yeah, bit by bit, the trumpet took a back seat and I wasn't really practicing anymore. I was just thinking about the guitar. And uh, so that's really what happened. And um, yeah, so the music really propelled me in that direction of playing the guitar. 
And at this point, you're still listening to rock. How does it turn into blues? How do you get from your Deep Purple to your Howlin' Wolf? Well, I really started off playing hard rock, and, uh, you know, when I was really young. 14 and 15 is when I started electric, uh, electric guitar between, yeah, about 14, 14 and a half years old. So, um, and I was playing hard rock. But in that hard rock, there was always a little sound of blues creeping through. I really got into, of course, listening. I heard Red House by Jimi Hendrix. And I heard that song by the great Deep Purple called Lazy, which is actually kind of a blues song. And, um, of course, um, Cream uh, came in. And um, so some of the classic Led Zeppelin, um, the first album I ever bought was... Uh, Led Zeppelin too, and that had some blues sounds on it. And so I was into that sound, and um, I noticed that the, the, the songs of, you know, the hard rock songs that had that blues uh, feeling in it attracted me most. So I was already making the transition at that point. I didn't switch over to uh, thinking about blues exclusively, but in my hard rock phase or my classic rock phase, I always gravitated towards the... Um, the blues part. Did, did your rock bands do much gigging? Um, actually, we did a fair bit. I mean, we were kids, right? We were doing our, our classes. Like I would go to group guitar lessons for a, a year or two. I met a lot of uh, friends that I'm still in contact with this, to this day. Um, we played in our little, uh, our little uh, ensemble, our little band, and we would do talent shows and outdoor um, community festivals and then you know 17 or 18 years old with permission from our parents we could go to the local pub or bar and uh, open for somebody you know and uh, we were playing classic rock and we weren't playing it very well but we were doing it and we were quite fearless when I think back about those days now so we actually did as many gigs as we could including some kind of uh, semi-reputable uh, uh, bars in Toronto that are probably long gone now that were pretty grimy and grungy, but we had that chance and we were, we were in there quickly to you know, take advantage of the opportunity. Did you think this is what I want to do as a living? Um, maybe it would have been a bit of a dream at that time. I wasn't really thinking, you know, of course we, you know, probably most of us wanted to be um, musicians or stars at that age, you know, adolescents were thinking about uh, being stars, but the realistic, you know, um, thought behind it, um, rationally thinking about it didn't, uh, you know, didn't enter into our minds. So I may have been dreaming about that, but I wasn't uh, on any kind of career path or, or thinking that I was going to, you know, that's it for me. I found my thing. I don't think so in my case, but I knew that music would always be a part of my life. That's for sure. How did you go more in deeper into the blues and get into the Toronto blues scene? Hmm. Well, um, that, uh, live, uh, El Macombo recording of Steve Ray one that was played on the, uh, city TV, the simulcast. I remember that. And that really made me focus in on, on blues at the time, 1983, I believe. And um, so that's where I wanted to go musically. That's what I wanted to do. That was a helpful uh, 
a helpful program because it really got me focused on playing that. And um, I moved out west to Vancouver for a couple of years um, in the early 90s. But between that time that I heard uh, Steve Ray Vaughan and between the time that that concert and the time that I moved, um, I was just, you know, through university playing in kind of rock blues bands. But I always wanted to get those um blues numbers in and I was always looking for people. I didn't have too much, uh, you know, too much luck in uh, forming a band for traditional blues or anything, but I was a regular at uh, Albert's Hall and uh, Alma Combo and uh, Grossman's and so on. So I had my formative studying years at that uh, time period. And when I moved out West, that's when I really, uh, I really made the conversion into playing the music. What was is it something about being out west that lend itself to that or yeah there was a there was a great blues club at the time called the Yale Hotel and um which is no longer there but uh um what really made me put me over the edge um was going to see on a stormy Vancouver night in winter um rainy and dark um I went to see John Hammond um do a solo gig at the Yale on like a Wednesday night. And there was five people in the bar, five customers. And, uh, you know, I guess he was waiting for more customers to come or something, but nobody, there was only five of them. So he just said, you know, why don't we just grab seats and, you know, gather around and I'm just going to play stuff. And we're like, oh, that's why. Wow. So we were like, you know, in a circle and uh, just watching him play. And, of course, you've seen John Hammond. When he does a solo gig, it's just like a full band. He has his feet going. He has his harmonica. He's singing. He's pounding on his guitar, and he plays great. You know, so it's just mesmerizing to watch him. And um, yeah, it was a full-length concert for five of us. It was amazing. So the next day, that was it. I was at the CD store looking for everything. <laughs> And just deciding that, oh, that's it. I have to, um, you know, I had just finished up a contract job in um, Vancouver and I had decided already about a month earlier to move back to Toronto. And that was it. Like I was coming back to Toronto and I was definitely this time going to get involved in the Toronto blues scene because I had made that plan to come back to, to you know, back home. Um, so that's really, that was like the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. So what's your playing like at this point? Like, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I really, really got into it. I'd been listening a lot and I'd gone to see a lot of shows. I'd seen so many shows and always up front and, you know, studying it and listening a lot. And I'd been playing a fair bit. So, you know, I was definitely elementary, but I was definitely going in that traditional blues um, route, you know, to playing traditionally not the you know casting away from the the usual uh rock blues you know as much as i like the clapton and the hendrix and the steve ray Vaughan, i really was taken by the traditional sound which guitar what guitarist would you have focused in on um up just like it is today today my favorites are like t-bone walker and jimmy reed and you know, I really like the uh, guitarists like Robert Lockwood Jr. and so on that were playing behind the harmonica players. So um, 
that's for example three examples of course the the three kings the bb and albert and freddie and uh, so that those were probably some of the first ones that i really got into and at that time i was really kind of focusing uh, on uh, i realized that you know you can't learn everything so you've got to pick something and instead of going the acoustic route as much as i loved it i thought i wanted to be a member of a band so i was listening to that type of music that would have facilitated this and um, so, yeah, those would have been some of the first ones that I really got into. So you, you come back to Toronto and you think, I'm going to get into the blue scene. How easy is it to get into the blue scene of the city? <laughs> uh, well, it wasn't very easy, actually. Um, there was, you know, there was a pretty good uh, active um, club or bar scene at the time. Um, there was quite a few places, actually. And so, uh, as I had done before, I just started to go and uh, watch some of the local bands. And at the time as well, there was quite a few festivals, much more than there would be now, blues festivals. So I would go to them and, um, you know, I wound up meeting people uh, through the Toronto Blues Society as well. um, And people that just wanted to get together and uh, play. And so... I had, you know, sort of loftier ambitions, I guess. I really wanted to do it. But um, so, you know, I, I met up with people and I started, uh, we started jamming and we started, I started to go to jam nights as well. Um, at the time, the jam night was something, you know, quite common, including the Grossman's, the classic Grossman's jam and so on. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how it started. And it didn't go right away, but it went relatively quick. Within around six months of coming back, I had already started to, you know, do the odd gig here and there with some, whichever, whatever the names of the bands were, I don't know, but (laughs) I can't remember. But uh, we definitely started to do it as quickly as we could. In my case, uh, joining various bands at the time. And that was always the goal, to be a band member. Yeah, at the time, and um, at the at and, you know, in the, in in the initial point of starting off in Toronto, I just wanted to be a member of a band just to just to get into it quickly and uh, play the music that I wanted to play as well. That traditional kind of real getting back to the roots style blues, not the the more contemporary sound. So it was a little trickier in that respect because the. Um, you know, traditional blues has a limited following and there's just uh, there's a handful of musicians that do it that style. You know, at the time there was more in Toronto, but still very few musicians in comparison to um, other forms of music. Would you have had a goal at that point? Was there anything that you were trying to achieve? Was it simply just get in a band and play or did you have any other kind of a goal for, your, for either a career or for something you're working towards? Hmm. Um, well, it changed as I, as I got into the, you know, started to do some gigs. I, of course, I was thinking, um, I was thinking further ahead that, uh, you know, I wanted to get into better bands. And then of course the idea of doing some recordings came in and, um, you know, just to get closer and closer to the pure roots. I was a real purist at the time and, um, understand it. That was a goal, like really understand finer points and, um, you know, just to be in better and better ensembles and uh, work on the quality of that. That was a a shorter term goal, but uh, I was working pretty hard at that. 
And of course, you know, um, tried to team up with musicians that were more experienced and better than me. <laughs> I really wanted to be with, because, you know, I realized that that's a way of really understanding the music and understanding your, um, your place in an ensemble is to play uh, with the best musicians you possibly can. And uh, it's a way of growing. So that was a goal. Yeah. Can I ask you who you might have encountered that was really helpful to you? One of the first um, musicians that I met and that I started doing gigs with uh, very shortly after moving back to Toronto was Mark Bird Stafford. And um, yeah, it was not long after, just a couple months, maybe three or four months after I came back. And uh, we had met at some jam and uh, I kept in touch with him quickly. And and then he had me on a gig and uh, that was great. And it started to, um, you know, we, we started to play more often and it got me sort of thinking more about that style of music, the harmonica blues. And I really love the guitar behind the harmonica blues from the 50s. And I found that it was something that, uh, you know, you really had to study and it became a goal to really get into that style of music, you know, and being a, a company player uh, behind harmonica, traditional blues harmonica, because I love the music, you know, it was some of the first uh, CDs at the time that I bought, the Little Walter and um, Sonny Boy Williamson and, uh, you know, the Junior Wells and so on. Is there is there something because I've interviewed a few people who who've kind of made a name being guitar players for harmonica players like Alex Schultz and Rick Holmstrom? Yeah. Other than just not getting in the way of the harmonica, what what how would you describe what the role of the the guitar player supporting a harmonica player would be? Well, it it sets up a base for harmonicas. Um, sets up a, a, you know, it's a traditional style coming probably from originally from the Delta, but then when it, uh, it started in Chicago, there was a sort of a, a platform that was happening. Muddy Waters band had this because he had the great harmonica players and Little Walter split off from that. Sonny Boy Williamson, there was that chess sound as well, which, um, they used the same musicians generally, pooled them together with different harmonica players. So there was a sound and a style. So the guitar fits in that sound and style. And of course, they were tailoring it to the wishes of the harmonica player, what they had in there. And they were probably just improvising at the time, too. When you listen back to those recordings, you hear that, yeah, they're just they're just playing, you know, they're just playing it and putting in their own feel. So at the time, they were probably creating it you know, ad-libbing it. So that's the sound of some of those great guitar players like uh, Robert Lockwood and Jimmy Rogers, and even Eddie Taylor behind Jimmy Reed. Such, you know, natural kind of improvised. There's a sound. It's a, um, a multi-layered sound when it comes to uh, the guitar and how it fits into those, uh, into that style. So as a, as a guitar player who, who's a traditionalist, who's looking up to these specific players and the specific type of music accompanying harmonica players. Are you trying to imitate or are you trying to, and I, I don't mean that in a negative way, but how do you pursue that? Do you try to imitate these greats 
or do you try to carve out something unique to you yet doing what they do well and when you first start up with start up with a new style of music i really do think it is you know a matter of learning and you do have to uh, emulate and uh, at the time we didn't have youtube or anything to watch you know videos on how to do it so we had to do that by ear so inevitably we'll wind up doing things in our own um, we would have been listening to the, you know, those, those records. And at the time too, there was, you know, harmonica players like Kim Wilson, you know, uh, Rod Piazza and so on that were doing their, you know, kind of covers as well of the, of the greats. So we would have learned filtered through also coming up, um, to, uh, you know, the blues bars in, in, uh, Toronto as well. We could go and see somebody do, uh, a take, their take, and uh, keeping it pretty traditional because most of the harmonica players that I knew at the time were really traditionalists as well. So they'd wanted as close as possible to the original. So that was a further motivator to kind of get it close. But inevitably you wind up putting your own stamp on it because there's only so much time to copy. And really for the feel you need as a band, you have to let it kind of go as it goes instead of trying to cut and paste or or put it together in a um, you know in sort of a mechanical way it has to be naturally flowing so yes the uh, the answer is eventually we wind up putting our own uh, take on it our own our feel or our own sound or our own way of expressing what we're trying to do was there a point where you realized that you had reached the point where you wanted to be and I know it's an, it's an ongoing pursuit, mm -hmm. but from that kid who saw John Hammond decide to come back to Toronto and pursue mm -hmm. playing blues, how long did it take till you felt like, yeah, I think I'm a blues guitar player? Um, yeah. Well, it was a gradual process, but um, at one point I was in, I was doing a lot of gigs each week, and um, the festivals had started uh, for me. I was able to you know, play with uh, musicians that were of, of the standing where they could, they were invited by festivals and the shows were getting better and their, the calendar was filling up. Um, so at that point I realized that, yeah, this can be uh, considered as something like a, a form of work as well. It doesn't just have to be like a hobby pursuit. And I was still really into playing. I was really, really focusing on the playing part. And whatever work that I was doing on the side was always um, tailored to allowing me to have the time that I needed and wanted to do the music. So it kind of came gradually, but uh, I realized that, uh, yeah, um, my first goals had been achieved that way when I got to the point where I was, you know, really moving it up a notch as far as playing live goes. So... Let's talk about some of the people you've played with. I didn't know that you had actually played with Henry Butler mm -hmm. at, a, at a festival somewhere. What was yeah, that like? I, yeah, that was uh, at the uh, Harvest Blues Festival. Well, yeah. And um, so we had, we had done our shows, and then there was a nighttime kind of sessions, uh, there was a nighttime session, and... Uh, one of the musicians didn't have a band that would have been Henry Butler. So um, 
he needed a guitar player and he needed uh, a drummer. Don't remember if he needed a bass player, but uh, so we wound up uh, because he, you know, he really had that. He had everything covered. I don't think he needed anyone, but uh, you know, he wanted to play blues because you know he was certainly able to play all kinds of different stuff. So that was challenging, and it was you know it was great. It was you know really uh, he kept it straight ahead for us, but he was playing really nice traditional blues. That's something that seemed that he had a lot of fun doing that. So yeah. Wow. You know, because that's something that you, when you were, you know, at his stature, he can play whatever, basically whatever he wants to play. And taking it back and playing some kind of Otis Span style piano, wow, such a great sound, you know, deep roots. Another person that you worked with that we both admire and respected a great deal was Mel Brown. Tell me about what yeah. Mel meant to you. Oh yeah, Mel. Mel is probably my biggest. Was the biggest influence for me after. Um, after I had met him, I didn't meet him actually. I saw him many times um, before meeting him, and uh, uh, wow, it was a, just a, a phenomenal experience to see him live the first uh, time. Then I would go and see him as many times as I could, and um, I guess. There was a lot of respect there, but I could feel that uh, all those years of experience and just the way he would approach music. Um, of course, his guitar playing was just mind boggling for me. And it was, you know, probably my biggest influence that I found in Toronto, even though he wasn't from Toronto. You could feel that, uh, you know, um, you could feel his roots and his experience in whatever he played. So, um, yeah, I did a, I did my first show with him ever in 1998 and, um, yes, it was a, a nervous experience, but <laughs> it was great. It was great. And I learned a lot from him from day one. I remember him turning around, we were doing some kind of a shuffle. And of course I, you know, eagerly just saying, Oh, I just want to play rhythm guitar. He wouldn't let me, he always point to me and say, you play one. <laughs> with his kind of gruff, you know, voice. And he turned around to me when I was experimenting with chords and changing the, the blues rhythm, which should have been just like a Jimmy Reed rhythm, you know, and he turned around and said, get back on that rhythm, he said to me with an angry, <laughs> almost an angry voice. And I'll never forget that. That was great. That was a great, great lesson. Just to, just do it. Just stay there and do it and hold on to something. Don't be noodling around or messing around on my show. <laughs> So just that little, like, just that little detail, you know, I have to give thanks to him where it's due because that really tightened up the ship for me. You know, it really um, got me thinking about this and uh, it was like a lesson. It was a lesson, a live lesson. Great. And the way he would instruct, you know, the band, when we backed him up, we weren't, we weren't that great and we were sort of eager and, uh, energetic to you know kind of show our stuff or whatever you know and um so you know this kind of this is one example and there's many examples and it was great to have the pleasure to be able to play with him on many um opportunities and to do recordings with him and and just just chatting with him as well he was a really good guy whenever that possibility came up um you know uh, about whatever just things about life as well when you watch him as on stage or 
from the audience and as a guitar player what do you learn from watching him play well just how connected he was to to the music and the rhythm of the music the groove and how he'd fuse everything together and how his natural ability to play with call and response was amazing as well just natural not studied natural like studied in the sense that you didn't need to study that it just that's the music and this is how i play the music and he had that ability so you would notice that um he had his own sound as well he had that big super 400 guitar which is like the biggest electric you can possibly get he had those huge hands and he could really he could really play that guitar aggressively or gently in a more jazzy or funk way um, or he could play some Jimi hendrix uh, so amazing ability to switch uh, musically um, so i would notice that live as well and i would notice his ability uh, to find his place in whatever situation you'd be uh, playing, you know, a, a style and a sound that would fit whatever song would be playing, play amazingly connected to the music itself. Did you ever go away from the blues? Is it still like, is, is your pursuit of playing the blues still the same as it was 15, 20 years ago? Oh, no, no. that's changed quite a bit. Um, in what way? I'm still playing blues, but um, I would call it roots and blues now. Um, I did get interested in jazz some years ago and more as a listener and always with the root being in blues because that's my favorite music is blues. But um, combining jazz with blues, so blues jazz or jazz blues. And... Um, I always liked a little bit of rock and roll sound as well. The old rock and roll from the origins of it all, uh, 1950s and early 60s. So um, I started to get more interested in that as well. And uh, recently, uh, in the last, since the pandemic, I really got into acoustic finger style, blues. Huh? So that's uh, something that's kind of new. and you know, solo acoustic blues playing and finger stuff. So that's something that's changed as well, that, um, you know, I didn't really play too much acoustic back in the day. And I liked it. I always loved it. But it was just like a, a, a huge new project to get into. And um, I realized that I'd really have to dedicate some large amount of time to get into and investigate that style. So there was different styles of music that changed my goals uh, as for musical goals over the years. And so I wouldn't say it's the same anymore. I still enjoy playing with harmonica players, but um, I, I moved on and uh, I started singing and forming my own band. And in my own band, I would play R&B, um, some rock and roll, always blues, traditional as traditional as I could with my ensemble and some acoustic, acoustic blues duos as well. And we mix in a little bit of country, a little bit of rock, and a little bit of, you know, a little bit of R&B as well. So definitely things have changed over the years. In the beginning, we were talking about how I probably haven't seen you in about 10, 11, 12 years. Um, mm -hmm. Somewhere along the way, you moved to Peru. But before that, I guess you moved there because you started a business of, of guitar accessories. Is that the That's way? Right. 
Um, so tell me about how that started, the Pete Schmidt Guitar Accessories Company. <laughs> well, actually, it goes back before that. In 2005, I started going to Cuba. And because at the time, I had, apart from playing music in the daytime, I would have an internet uh, business of selling music, selling uh, collectible vinyl, selling musical instruments, um, and accessories. So in Cuba? See, si, yeah, in okay. Cuba and um, Havana. So for a period of around four and a half years, I was going regularly to Havana and uh, finding Cuban music for my customers in America. It was part of my uh, reselling or my internet business. So I, I started to do that and I started to get into Cuban music at the time, obviously. I had to study it to know, you know, um, what kind of music to find. And um, because Cuban music, obviously, at the time, the original Cuban music was, was and probably still is really hard to get. So that was uh, um, my first foray into Latin America. Um, when that wrapped up, um, and it wrapped up because I had been doing that for about 10 years, selling on the uh, internet from the mid nineties until the, um, no, actually the late nineties until about the late, uh, you know, 2008, 2009 period, about 10 years. And, um, so as my internet, uh, business, you know, it was time for a change. And I started thinking about, uh, what am I going to do next? And, uh, of course I wanted to keep it around music so that I would be able to, you know, continue to play. The music, which is always, you know, my first, first interest and first goal. So um, the idea to uh, start manufacturing accessories in Latin America came to me one day and I thought I'd investigate it. So uh, that's how that started in uh, 2009, 2010. Okay, so two questions. One is when you when you're spending half the time in Cuba, musically, what were you doing? Are you, like personally, what were you playing at that point? Um, yeah, I was still playing blues. I would come back to Toronto for a month and I'd be in Cuba for a month and I would alternate between the two countries. So when I came back, I would be playing blues as usual and as I had always been doing. In Cuba, there's not too much blues. I played a little bit, but it's Cuban music and it's a, it's a really, um, you know, a really uh, profound country for music there's so many different styles and so many great musicians and a lot of fusion there as well but not really blues so i was listening to cuban music especially the older stuff uh, the older styles and i was around music all the time because it's everywhere in the city so that was inspiring in a way i did you know to i did start taking some lessons uh just for my interest and just because i like the music but uh again to be to be good at any form of music you really have to kind of dedicate yourself to it to get into that style of music so for me it was sort of just a, a something to do while i was there to play you know as a, a new hobby style of music so when you decide that you want to look into guitar accessories, is there is there a reason behind that? Did you find that there was a need for things that were lacking? Well, I was a real guitar collector and guitar nerd for <laughs> for most of my life since I was a kid. And every time I would have buy a new guitar, which I had many at the time, 
um, I would buy accessories to go with it. And of course, uh, guitar straps and cases and anything related to the guitar itself as accessories would have, were something that I was always interested in and I would always include in my purchase. So um, the guitar straps and cases, etc., things like that, um, I thought I, I understood that in Latin America I could probably manufacture that type of product if I can find the right country and the right uh, people to manufacture because in Latin America they still handcraft and you can find the raw materials. And of course, there's the difference in pricing as well. You can actually make a business out of it if you study it enough. So that's where that idea came up from, from my interest in guitars and accessories related to uh, guitars. So I was um, quite into that back in the day. So you, just how you think, okay, I'm going to do guitar straps. I'm going to tell people how to make it. Are, are you designing these mm -hmm. things? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and and figuring out what what how you could make money off this and and importing and exporting it to different countries and whatever like how how much about that business did you know the actual manufacturing part basically nothing um i knew i knew a good guitar strap and i had good guitar straps that i'd spent a lot of money on. some of them you know really quite expensive and um, I knew the difference between something that was, uh, you know, made in, made in Asia and, uh, and low cost to something that was handcrafted um, in America. So I took some of the better examples that I had and there was a trade show in Peru. Um, and I went down with my business partner um, to investigate and I brought samples and um, we had sort of mock-up designs of you know straps and guitar cases and things like that that we were planning to investigate to see if it's possible and show physical samples of you know some which i considered good straps and to see you know kind of cost it out and to meet some people that were actually making this type of a product so it was a, a trade show that we went to textile and uh, leather trade show. And that's how that started. Um, after the show, we, we spent a little bit of time down there just checking out the uh, country and then um, came back to Canada and continued on with the plan. And uh, I returned uh, shortly after, a couple months after, and actually started to look for people to make samples and to really cost it out properly to see what... Uh, what opportunities there were um, and and what the material supply uh, possibilities were and so on. The, the, uh, the um, requirements, the government requirements for customs and so on, all those details had to be taken care of as well as the, um, you know, living down here with the right uh, immigration permission and so on. Did you see it as an international business? Or I guess because of the internet things could be international very easily but how did you picture yeah. that business to be when you initially started it yeah definitely thinking about um making it international and of course the country with the biggest demand for that kind of product is america um there um europe and uh, asia and uh, 
you know, the rest of North America, Mexico and Canada, much smaller. But uh, America was really the target country and it was going to be a small business. <clears throat> there was no plan to turn this into a huge uh, <laughs> multinational, but selling um, outside of um, <clears throat> outside of our area as well. That was a plan. And um, it, very, it, it had to do with how we were going to approach this. And, you know, we started off with a, a crawl just to see how it went and uh, sort of testing the market was the first stage of that. And is it easy to get into? I, I would please think that you would try to sell to places like the Guitar Center or whatever. But is it easy <laughs> as a small, independent guitar strap manufacturer to go into these stores and say, hey, this is what we have, which is a, a better quality, higher end strap for less money? Or like, is it easy to get into the door that way? Definitely not. Not easy <laughs> at all. Um, there's a ferocious competition and large established companies and lots of startups, lots and lots of startups. And you really have to have a good product. So in my case, I kind of for myself, I knew the difference of a strap that I really considered or a case or, you know, some idea around leather or fabric that I considered a good product for me. And that was the starting point in my case. And uh, the design part of it as well is different. It is a different uh, level of uh, understanding where you actually have to, you know, pay attention to the styles and maybe even the fashion of guitars because it changes um, instruments in general because we, we made products for all kinds of different instruments. So um, no, it wasn't in, it wasn't uh, easy to enter like a large guitar center or even just a small store. You have to uh, approach it as a whole business, as a whole, instead of just here's my product, please buy it. No. It needs to be approached from a business side. There's a marketing side and a manufacturing side, of course. And uh, there's the logistical side as well and the financing side and so on. You have to take care of all those bases at the same time and <clears throat> understanding that your customer also has the same kind of framework which, with which they operate within. So um, to start up a new business takes a lot of, uh, of input, of time and energy and creative thinking as well. Plus pounding the pavement for sure and going to trade shows and so on, which we did rapidly after developing our product. We started to go to uh, um, trade shows like the NAM trade show in California and so on. And assumed the, the cost and whatever because that was a, a way of, of um, you know connecting possible customers in that, in that respect. So a number of years in is this where you thought this business would be has it been 10 years now yeah yeah it's it's changed a lot um and uh it definitely grew and um there was a lot of testing in the early periods because i was making even dog collars and dog you know walking uh, dog collars and uh, leashes and camera straps and I was getting into making leather wallets and all kinds of different products but focusing in on the you know the original or originally intended product became 
my focus in the last uh, four or five years. And so it's changed definitely. And um, back in the day, there was no great uh, dream or wish to, you know, take over, take over <laughs> segment of the, the industry or anything like that. But um, definitely, um, you know, progress was made. And uh, during the pandemic, the business grew big time because demand went really high during the COVID pandemic. So how do you explain that? Is that just people wanting to be at home playing guitar? I think so. I think, I think so. Um, and remembering that right now I manufacture for um, other brands, like I'm an OEM manufacturer now, an exporter. So I do some work under my own name still, but the largest part of my business is OEM. So I just manufacture for other companies and uh, other brands. So it has another brand, but it's made by me down here. So those other brands being American, um, when the pandemic started, nobody knew what was going to happen, but demand really, really went high, probably because of the, uh, uh, the U.S., uh, um, I guess the U.S. government uh, passing on their relief payments to the population and people staying at home for sure and getting tired of watching Netflix and <laughs> looking at their guitar in the corner there and thinking, well, maybe I should pick it up and see. And um, new part, uh, a new audience, a new audience for these products as well. Younger people, um, acoustic guitars and so on became... Uh, popular, really popular, ukuleles and um, as well, ukuleles and stringed instruments in general uh, picked up steam and uh, demand became higher and supply was really limited because of the pandemic, <clears throat> meaning that demand remained and remains high for all these reasons. That's why. And I do think, yes, as a hobby, um, especially guitars have really have really increased over uh, two years ago, really quite a bit. Um, the large manufacturers just can't keep up with production demands. Do you have a physical store in Peru? Um, no, I don't. I do some, there's a internet site where um, products are in it, but it's an American based site that sells products under my own name. Um, I do sell in, in Peru and in Latin America. Um, but I sell uh, a wholesale to stores and uh, I stayed away from selling retail. Um, and I leave that up to uh, a couple guys that run my uh, website in America. They actually sell directly to the public. Um, but down here, no, I don't have a store because uh, I'm, I'm really a, a wholesale uh, manufacturer and exporter. What was it like moving down there when you decide, okay, I'm gonna pursue this? Other than the business part of it, but going and saying, this is where I'm going to live for the next little while. What was that like? Well, I had the Cuba, the Cuba experience. So I was already speaking Spanish and I was used to the Latin American culture and the food and the, you know, the, um, the city life of Latin America. And Lima is a really big city. Um, like probably 11 million now. So getting used to that size of a city took some getting used to for sure. 
but um, I was already quite used to, you know, the lifestyle of Latin America. And uh, um, yeah, so it wasn't, it wasn't a shock or anything. It was a learning process, but it went relatively quickly in my case. And um, it really wasn't too, uh, you know, it wasn't really too much of a great challenge. Um, I actually quite enjoyed it, and I, I like the climate and uh, the people, and the fast pace of life takes some getting used to, and that, you know, took took a while. Um, the food is great, and, uh, you know, there's a little bit of a different way of thinking that we, than we would be used to in North America, so all of which can be looked at in a positive way, you know. For sure. Would you ever come back to Canada, or do you think that's... Mm-hmm no longer a possibility well at this point um i'm coming back to visit as often as i can especially now when things are much freer for traveling so definitely going to be coming up for visiting but uh to live again i'm not really sure uh, um i don't you know i don't have any plans right now i'm quite uh quite okay in latin america we'll see we don't we never know where things will go in the future so can't say anything absolutely definite about that, but uh, for now I'm, I'm, you know, taking it one year at a time and continuing on here in Latin America. And musically, what are you doing now? Yeah, um, I definitely keep busy with uh, shows here. Um, as soon as I came down, I started to uh, investigate. Uh, within my first day or two, I was already playing. Um, I had my guitar in tow and just, you know, sitting in with some of the bands here. There's not a there's not a big blues scene, but there's a rock and roll scene and jazz. And there are a few people that play blues. So, of course, I wound up playing with them quickly and mixing in with some of the other styles of music, some jazz and some of the rock bands as well. Classic rock band. But um after about a year or so, I started focusing in on uh, playing the music that I wanted to play. And that meant forming my own band, my own trio. And I did that. And, um, and what was that like? Cause... Yeah, that was kind of... Because <laughs> <laughs> I never even knew you sang. Yeah, well, I wouldn't consider myself a great singer. But, uh, you know, I, I, I really wanted to do the music that I wanted to do. Um and just as a trio, so just with bass and drums and um, singing songs that I wanted to do. And, of course, I always like to do instrumentals as well, especially around the, the jazz um, jazz side of things. And audiences here are interesting, interesting in a way, in this way, uh, that uh, it's kind of foreign music for them because it's just not played. It, it wasn't played on the radio, it wasn't accessible on TV. Now with YouTube and so on, it's available, but there's no history, no long history of, of blues or roots um, music from North America. So it became like um, I would put on a show and then I would talk about the history of blues and I would explain uh, this song and I would explain a little bit uh, the, of the origins of the music and uh, link it together with the rock and roll and the jazz and sort of a little presentation of uh, um, what they call it in uh, Spanish, uh, didactico, which is like a little mini uh, 
seminar presentation, play and talk and play and talk. People seem to like that. And I started doing that with my own trio and I would have regular house gigs in small places and larger outdoor concerts and festivals as well. So um, regular night nightclub type uh, shows as well. So we actually kept fairly busy um, up till uh, the, the dreaded pandemic hit and then everything was down and out for a year and a half. But uh, up to that point, uh, really keeping it steady. I was playing with um, uh, some musicians that are relatively traditional in their blues taste, which is always a pleasure. And uh, when I was coming back to Canada, I would, you know, join my friends and we would play like we did in the old days. So that's what was happening there. It was never, there was never a period where there was no opportunity to play because I could make my own gigs with singing in my own way or presenting my own show, which was good. That was a really different step that I hadn't taken before in Toronto. I had the ability to make my own shows. And also doing now acoustic shows? Yeah, I'm doing a lot of acoustic shows now and um, getting back into the plan of traveling again to other countries in Latin America because I, I have played at you know in quite a few different countries in uh, South America as uh, as a guest so I would join other bands I'd play other bands and I would sing <laughs> and present a show and play with a backup band in, in Argentina and Paraguay and Chile I go quite a bit and uh, actually done some recordings with a band down there and Colombia and of course all kinds of um, um, places here in Peru and including other styles of music too including a little bit of country and a little bit of rock and roll old rock and roll so it's quite a and now acoustic quite a bit of acoustic blues in the duo format especially now uh, post pandemic there's a lot of places that just are restarting now and they are not ready for bands and they're just getting custom to uh, smaller formats and acoustic uh, acoustic events. Will you do any recording of your own? I know yeah, recordings I'll, are kind of weird these days, but... Yeah, it's a bit weird. I did another jam track project uh, for a harmonica player during the pandemic. What series are you... What volume are you up to now? <laughs> well, that would be night, the fifth disc. Okay. And this was just me playing solo guitar acoustically and it was I did this with uh, the harmonica player Ronnie Shellis who has a lot of harmonica students so he just said I, I can you make can you make a disc of this music that uh, with with no band so that there can be a real focus on just playing as a duo for people to practice uh, harmonica in the duo format acoustically so that was an interesting project that was a little recording um and recording with other bands and other projects, including here and in, uh, like I said, in Chile. And uh, I do need to record some of my own music um, as well. I have a big backlog of songs that I really, I really need to uh, get to. Um, just, you know, really for my own interest. At this point, thinking about it as a business idea, you know, the Jam Tracks projects were always kind of in that direction right. as an actual product that we were going to... Uh, Can people still buy those? 
Oh yeah, online they're still available. You can um, iTunes and uh, but you know it's all just quite strange now. All of this selling of music and yeah. downloads and so on. I think it's probably available everywhere. So I even you know will put um, some tracks out there as well and just sort of send a link for somebody that you know. With the exception of the prod project that was just done a year and a half ago, that's still for sale. But um, the other discs are probably out there somewhere, but um, <laughs> for sale. But uh, it's many years have passed. It's like over twenty years now when the first uh, jam. Well, I have my I have my copy of the Ultimate oh, Blues Jam Volume One. That's right. That's the collector's edition. <laughs> exactly. I should have had you sign it. <laughs> it's a vintage piece. Yes, with Shane Scott. Wow. Yep. Um, Pete, thanks yeah. so much for doing this. It's been so long since I saw you. It's great to catch up. Yeah, it's been uh, excellent to uh, connect again. And, yeah, it just looks like you've been very busy. Oh, yeah. Always uh, always a reason to keep energetic and uh, continuing along. And so if anybody's interested in your guitar accessories, it's PeteSchmidt.com? Yes, PeteSchmidt.com. And... Um, these days I'm doing uh, also, um, I do record videos for guitar related lessons and tutorials, which I put on YouTube. Um, and I, I do a lot of uh, virtual classes and seminars as well. How do people contact you for that? They can contact me through my um, email at peachmitblues at gmail.com. And on Facebook, my uh, peachmitblues. Uh, page on Facebook and Instagram, all those social media things, including on YouTube. Well, thank you, Pete. Yeah. Really nice catching up. Great to catch up with you as well, Mako. And uh, let's uh, try to uh, get in contact next time I'm in Toronto. I'll yeah, send you a message. definitely. Great. Thanks. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.